Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really, really appreciate it. As always, please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Rate, subscribe, and share these episodes in that order. Very important to do that <laughs> in that order. Uh, so we have a great episode for you today. We have a retired chief, uh, Norm Stamper, uh, who's written a couple of books. Uh, and um, I really, really appreciate him coming on the podcast. A really, really big time in, in the police world. Uh, believes in police reform. Uh, has done a lot of uh, great things. And what the big, biggest thing that he uh, has done is he's been able to admit his mistakes. Uh, I think that that is such a rare trait amongst all leaders, uh, no matter what uh, uh, um, your profession is, the ability to admit your mistakes publicly and to go on to try to make corrective actions, not only for your own mistakes, but to help to others to not, not to make the same mistakes is really, really important. So I, I appreciate uh, Norm Stamper for coming on the show. So a little bit about Norm Stamper. He was a police officer for 34 years. I'm gonna make this a little bit bigger here. Uh, police officer for 34 years. Um, the first 28, he was in San Diego. The last six as uh, Seattle's uh, Washington's chief of police. He earned his PhD in leadership and human behavior and is the author of two books to protect and serve how to fix america's police that was written in 2016 uh and Branking rank that's the book that i actually read i'm going to actually still have to read his his next book uh the first oh, the, the latest book i should say breaking rank a top cops uh expose of the dark side of american policing that was released in uh 2005. he's also uh finishing novels and just kind of enjoying his retirement uh, he's a trainer consultant expert witness keynote speaker uh, his commitment to police reform social justice has shaped the agendas for an end to the drug war abolition of the death penalty vanquishment of domestic violence from our society a concerted effort to drive bigotry and brutality out of criminal justice system development of broad respect and support for the nation's police officers a campaign to make every school every workplace every neighborhood and home a place of safety particularly for our children rejection of mass incarceration and a full full-fledged dedication to civil liberties and constitutional guarantees so uh this is an episode that uh we did it was a facebook live it's under my camera here uh it was facebook live uh that we did quite some time ago and i actually thought that i released it to the audio uh, audience there so my apologies to you all uh so we released it a, uh, we did the facebook live one um uh, quite some time ago and I'm releasing the audio now so I thought I had released it so this is what happens when you have one guy being the producer director uh, the tech guy the sound guy and all that kind of stuff so somehow it just kind of slipped through the cracks there but it's still a great interview uh, we talked about the George Floyd incident and just you know his life and career uh, in law enforcement so I know that you'll still have a great time listening to the episode so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the episode. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share uh, these episodes. Uh, hit me up on Instagram. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and on Twitter. Both of those are CPTL Hunter um, and Facebook page, Captain Hunter's Podcast on Facebook. Uh, I'm going over videos. I'm going, and so if there's any videos you want me to talk about or any police subjects you want me to talk about, I'll be more than willing. Oh, there you go. There we go. <laughs> okay. Okay. There we is, go. Is that going to work? I am so sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. I'm going to hang up. I'm going to hang up now on the phone here. But uh, right. yeah, so we're good. <laughs> so it's all right. It's all right. I, I was just th kind of thinking maybe you had some kind of uh, lock or block or 
super secret spy uh don't let anybody you know uh download <laughs> stuff or uh, i don't know i don't know so well I never had i wouldn't put it past me lawrence my fault <laughs> <laughs> it's all good it's all good okay so uh thank you so much to everyone who's joined in We've got a couple people and so we're going to get going here thank you guys so much for your patience for your time thank you uh to my man chris to uh karen thank you guys so much for coming on uh and uh i have here uh norm stamper dr norm stamper right as i'm going through your bio you, you got to be sneaky about that you got a phd you don't want to tell people about that right dr norm stamper <laughs> so well, former people say i've got this pain in my neck what do i do about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah doctor it hurts when i do this well stop doing that <laughs> yes don't do that i used to be able to raise my hand this side <laughs> yeah yeah uh so uh please um let me get rid of this uh banner here so we're not having technical issues anymore there you are norm stamper thank you so much for being here author writer speaker all that kind of good stuff former chief of police uh from seattle pd a uh, place i was actually at uh, not too actually like last summer i went to see my son there he was stationed out there but anyway nobody wants to hear about me let's talk about you norm stamper if you would introduce yourself to us please i'm happy to do that my name is norm stamper uh, a police officer for 34 years the first uh uh, 28 in San Diego, where I rose through the ranks to the number two position, uh, at which point I was recruited by then Mayor Norm Rice of the city of Seattle to become that city's police chief and served in that capacity for six years from 94 to 2000. I retired and the day after I retired, I started writing and that's what I've been doing mostly uh, for the last 20 years now. Very nice, very nice, yes. And so I came across your book. You wrote, you, you wrote your book, Breaking Rank, 2005? 2005, yes. Uh -huh. 2005. So I read your book. Uh, I mean, let's see. I must have been a lieutenant at the time or something like that. Uh, very, very impressed with the book. But before we get to that, so let's get to the good stuff here before we get into the, <laughs> the nitty-gritty. You've been riding since your retirement. What else have you been doing? You riding motorcycles? What, what have you been doing? Not riding motorcycles. I, I learned <laughs> okay. that lesson a long time ago. I had a very dear friend from my San Diego days who had a horrible accident in Death Valley. Uh, and uh, four or five years later, he's still paying a price for continuing to ride motorcycles. And so I don't do that, but I do consulting. I do some expert witness work. Uh, and today I'm writing fiction. Of course, my critics will tell you that the first two books uh, were fiction, but this is something that I'm just thoroughly enjoying. Mm. Okay, very good, very good. Um, and how is the consulting going in the writing? Uh, well, most of the most of the consulting these days, of course, is by Zoom, uh, and I have done seventy eight. 79 interviews since Memorial Day, uh, that horrific day on May 25th when uh, a Minneapolis police officer stuck his knee on the neck of a fellow human being and choked the life out of that human being. Uh, and I've done uh, interviews with media from around the globe, uh, literally, uh, testified by Zoom, 
uh, with the Oregon State Legislature. I've given a couple of speeches uh, by Zoom as well. And, uh, and then I'm, I'm continuing to do expert witness work on uh, police misconduct cases. Mm, very good, very good. So obviously that's the elephant in the room here, but before we get to that, let's talk about your work, Breaking Rank, book that really kind of really opened up my eyes. I would say that your book, Breaking Rank, and another book, uh, Michelle Alexander's book, um, uh, the new Jim Crow really kind of opened up my eyes to uh, what we're doing in law enforcement. Uh, and uh, so I'd like to get your thoughts about why you wrote the book and, uh, you know, what you hope to accomplish and what's been the overall presentation of that particular book. I, I wrote that book, Captain, because I felt a real need uh, to put on paper what I had seen, what I, what I had experienced, had gone through. And I particularly wanted to write it because I'm convinced that the institution of American policing uh, is in really dire, uh, urgent need of reform. And I don't mean tweaking the system. I don't mean cosmetic, public relations-oriented uh, changes, but true, deep reform. Uh, and so that was a, that was a have-to-write book. I just needed to write that book. Uh, get those arguments out of my system uh, and out into the uh, into the community writ large, uh, meaning the United States, and uh, did a, a whole bunch of uh, media and, and and speaking tours and so forth uh, in the immediate wake of that book, and have found that it continues to generate a lot of interest, and I think it's mostly because we're looking at. Uh, these days, a ton of recommendations or ideas or suggestions, uh, inevitably after a major catalytic event, some really horrific incident involving the police, particularly if we have, uh, if we have video of that incident, the Rodney King affair, uh, the George Floyd incident from May 25th. Uh, it causes an awful lot of people to say, hey, wait a minute, the official version uh, uh, as described by a, a, a police spokesperson or the sheriff or the police chief of a particular jur jurisdiction really doesn't comport with what we just saw. And so that's causing an awful lot of people to say, have the police been lying to us, uh, putting it bluntly? Have they been have they been uh, exaggerating or minimizing uh, facts or making them up of the whole cloth? And so it's added to mistrust. It's added to a real rift between community and police. It's always been there, uh, but it's, it's certainly as bad as I've ever seen it these days. And so there's a ton of interest out there now on police policies and practices and particularly in areas that I would describe as procedural justice, where, where law enforcement is accused of violating the Constitution, uh, violating their fellow human beings, and in the process, of course, contributing to that big gap between police and community. Mm. You received a lot of pushback from writing that book, right? Breaking Rank. I did, yeah. You ever wanted? Can you talk about that? I heard you got death threats. I'm not sure if that's true or not. If that's well, if I did, they didn't reach my ears. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Uh, I, I would. I would. I would not be surprised uh, if, if if that were true uh, throughout my career. Uh, and my career is, I, I say, it's kind of a spotty career because I started as a a wary uh, kind of critic of law enforcement uh, at at twenty when I took the exam in San Diego. I was convinced that uh, that I would be a different kind of cop. I wouldn't be the kind of cop that showed up at the door of uh, uh, the rhythm and blues band rehearsal uh, that I was involved in uh, back in the mid sixties. Uh, I was playing music at night, working in a veterinary hospital during the daytime. And uh, on a particular weekend day, we had two officers show up uh, in response to a noise complaint. And of course, our view was that this wasn't noise. This was rhythm and blues. This was doo-wop. This was really wonderful music. But the bottom line is neighbors were unhappy with our uh, volume, I guess. And so these two officers showed up. And within the briefest period of time, one of them uh, is using racial and ethnic slurs directed at our lead singer, at, at the backup singers, the guitar player, the, the percussionist, the piano player. Uh, it, it was really outrageous. And every one of us in that room, uh, 10 people, uh, were angry, but not a one of us said a word to these officers uh, in, in condemnation of the way they were behaving, standing on the front porch of our, our lead singer's home. It was outrageous. And I, so I'm telling myself when I finally became a cop, more or less accidentally, I'm not going to be that kind of cop. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm going to be decent. I'm going to be respectful. I am definitely not going to be using racial and ethnic slurs. I certainly won't use excessive force, all the kinds of things that, that I had seen or read about in law enforcement's um, response to the public safety challenge in our neighborhoods and communities around the country. So that's a long way of saying I was going to be a different kind of cop. And within five minutes, I'm sucked into that cop culture, which I'm guessing you can relate to easily enough. Um, and saying and doing things I had never said or done before in my life, uh, and not good things, things that I, to this day, am ashamed of. But um, having said that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience. I have, you know, 50 years later, I have a a very strong visceral memory of things that I did, things that I said uh, that should have gotten me fired uh, as, as a police officer during my rookie year. Mm. So that's really interesting. So let's dig into the culture a little bit. Um, you, you go in and say, I don't want to be this type of way. And then <laughs> to quote you five minutes later, uh, you know, the ink is still dry or it's drying on your application and you're, you're, you're saying and doing things that you regret now. Uh, how do you think that one gets sucked into that culture? Uh, I'll get personal here because I have to. Uh, I grew up in an abusive household. My father was emotionally and physically abusive. There were four boys, four sons. He had four sons. Uh, I was the oldest, and um, I was beaten, sometimes fairly severely, bloodied by the 
the man who's supposed to be my authority figure, the male role authority figure in my life. Uh, and I, I, I just thought, well, at about age 13 is when I said, okay, enough of this. And I kind of stood up to him. I wasn't about to tackle him physically. He was a much bigger individual than I was, but I, I basically said, no, you're not going to hit me anymore. And, uh, and I stood by that. We uh, reached some kind of a, uh, a rapprochement, the French would call it, I guess, where we reached this kind of uneasy agreement that he wouldn't do that anymore. And, and I would try to mind him and do what he wanted me to do. But in addition to those experiences in, in my own home, I'm seeing police officers uh, on the streets and in the communities uh, abusing their authority. So it was with this real strength of character that I thought I had that I made that you know determination that I wasn't going to be that kind of cop. So what can overcome that? And the answer is, uh, when I became a San Diego cop, I felt like I belonged. I was welcomed into a professional family uh, that made me feel wanted and respected, even as I'm being influenced by some not particularly uh, honorable behavior. Uh, so I, I just got sucked into a culture where I was feeling like, hey, this is, this is home. This is my family. Uh, these, these cops are uh, uh, doing things and saying things and, 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 and showing me, uh, basically, that I belonged there. Uh, and it, it was a mixed bag. I mean, there was good stuff that was done. I saw good police work. I have a conceit that I did some good police work during my rookie year, uh, relatively little as a rookie. But as, as time went on, as the years went on, uh, I, I thought that I became a, a pretty decent cop. But at about 14 months on the job, I got slapped upside the head by a principled prosecutor uh, who, not to put too fine a point on it, asked me if the Constitution and the United States meant anything to me. And uh, I will tell you right now, I was angry, uh, just, just really angry at him uh, for having the nerve to question me. I mean, I'm a cop. He's not. I'm out there on the mean streets. This is San Diego. Uh, I'm out there during the heat and the cold, once again, San Diego. But <laughs> I'm doing police work in the real world. He's wearing his, you know, his, his I, I'll never forget the image of him. Three-piece suit, pinstripe back in the day, uh, hair slicked back, tortoiseshell glasses. He looked like a Hollywood lawyer, just stepped off the screen of a, of a, of a grade B movie. Uh, and so he had the nerve to ask me if the Constitution meant anything just because he was holding one of my arrest reports that would today be described and then should have been described uh, as, as a report of a false arrest. I arrested a 19-year-old kid uh, uh, because he questioned my authority, because he challenged me as a human being. And we just can't have that. You know, I'm the cop. He's not. I'm the one with the authority. He lacks it. I'm the one who's going to determine 
uh, the outcome of that particular interaction that I have with him. And yet here he decides to take this. It was a straight drunk arrest. Only problem being that he wasn't drunk uh, and uh, and decides that he's going to take me to court. Now, his straight drunk arrest typically didn't go to court in those days. You pay the fine and you go about your business. And in this particular case, I walked up to that attorney, told him he probably wanted to dismiss his case. And he said, why would I want to do that? And I explained. And he's, that's when he asked me if the Constitution meant anything to me. And uh, so I went from anger, Lawrence, to uh, embarrassment, to shame in, in probably 30 to 60 seconds, uh, standing in that uh, hallway of the San Diego County Courthouse. Um, and by the time I walked out uh, into a bright, sunshiny Southern California day, I was awash in shame. I had done exactly what I had promised myself I would not do. So um, a tremendous, painful educational experience. I had violated the rights of one of my fellow citizens. I had no right to do what I did. That prosecutor's question was not only relevant, it was probably life-saving or certainly career-saving uh, because it got my attention. Mm. And from that point forward, I became as much a change agent in law enforcement as I was a cop trying to help change the system. That's a powerful story. And that's, that's thank you for, for saying that. And I hope that many junior young officers who may see this would understand that and um, understand that you can't get sucked into the culture of doing everything that's around you because you can get embarrassed as you were, whether it's, uh, you know, and that was a good experience, but people out here today, you do something like that with video cameras and cell phone cameras, uh, you're, you'd be looking at jail, <laughs> you know? I would. You're absolutely <laughs> right. And in fact, were it not uh, for, for video, uh, for body-worn cameras, for dash cams, for cell phones that everyday citizens are, uh, you know, pushing that little red button at the bottom of the, of the camera and start recording for everyone to see the behavior, the attitude of our police officers. And, and some do us proud. Some engage in heroic work and do uh, incredible, in some cases, life-saving work. Uh, they stop people from hurting other people. Uh, it's, it's dignified, honorable work, and it's wonderful to, to see that. But as we know only too painfully these days, sometimes those cell phones and, and body cameras are capturing something quite different from that. Yeah, I was just about to ask you what, what, the, what the, how much of a game changer do you think that was, uh, the introduction of the cell phone cameras? And, and if we take it down to, uh, you mentioned Rodney King in 1991, 92 or so, uh, how much, how much do you think that, that cell phone cameras, video cameras have shown the world, uh, what some officers are doing, uh, when they think that no one's looking? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, it's fascinating to study the Rodney King incident, which, which I've done, uh, at, at some length and and uh, and return to from time to time because that was the first graphic depiction 
of police violence for many of us in, in the country. Uh, and up and down the state of California, this of course was in Los Angeles, and I was a uh, uh, in in the uh, uh, early 90s. This ha did happen in, in 1991, and in the early 90s, I was asked to give a, a kind of a symposium for police chiefs and, and police training officers throughout the state uh, on the Rodney King incident, and they were particularly interested in having me explore. Uh, what they called bystandership. It's like, we know when a police officer is misbehaving. We know that when Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd's neck and kept it there for all of those minutes, uh, literally killing a man in our presence, that that was as wrong as wrong can get. And yet no one intervened. It was like, you, you see the expression on his face, it's galling. He, he, he had this expression of, I got this. This is, you know, watch me kids, because he's a 19, 20 year veteran and he's surrounded really by rookies. And those rookies just, if, if, <laughs> if they weren't keeping people away, they were essentially ignoring this crime, horrible crime that was being committed by a fellow officer. So I think it's had a hugely important effect uh, on, on policing and certainly the community's image of policing. And yet the Rodney King incident in which an unarmed, non-threatening man who clearly had broken the law, he led cops on a big chase, the adrenaline gets pumping. That's all, that's all kind of a, should be a trigger to police officers to calm down. Not, not amp up, uh, to, to do everything that they can to maintain control of their emotions. And yet, what do they do? They just go crazy, uh, beatings, uh, senseless, senselessly, this unarmed, non-threatening man. And yet, a jury acquitted each of those four LAPD officers. It wasn't until the civil trial that we saw some form of justice. So, you know, I think seeing is believing. Uh, and when you get the official spokesperson in front of that bank of microphones saying we had a tragic incident last night, uh, this individual advanced on a police officer with a, an edged weapon, a knife, a baseball bat, what have you. The officer had no choice. Uh, it's a sad day for everyone, so on and so forth. I don't mean to minimize or trivialize uh, official reporting of incidents, I do mean to question the accuracy of that reporting. Uh, we need assurances that what we're being told by our local law enforcement agency is the truth, that it is accurate, and indeed that it is timely. When we say, well, we're going to conduct an investigation, we'll get back to you in three months. That's, that's real hard, I think, for a community to take, especially where in in black and brown communities, among young people, poor people, and people of color, uh, the police have such a historically strained relationship. Um, putting people off, not conducting accurate, thorough, timely investigations and reporting transparently and accountably uh, what your organization is doing in the wake of one of those incidents, 
I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity. It's, it's, it's usually born of tragedy and, you know, really horrific incident, but it's an opportunity to test whether or not the, the local agency is leveling with its community. There's no substitute for that. It may be painful. Uh, if what we have done as an agency is indefensible, then we have to say that. If people can see that it's indefensible, we destroy our credibility if we get defensive about it. So we have a long ways to go as far as I'm concerned. We have a lot of good people in the institution, uh, but we have some practices and some habits that need to be extinguished. So you, you mentioned the Rodney King incident. In your opinion, I'm going to ask you to put on some, some type of semi-lawyerly hat. <laughs> what, what, uh, why why was, were those officers not convicted? In your opinion, why were they not convicted? Is the public just okay with what happened? I mean, the, the members of the jury anyway. What, what Understand that that was not an L.A. jury. That was not a Los Angeles jury. That trial, uh, because of the inflammatory nature and certainly all the massive publicity was moved to Simi Valley. That's a bedroom community well removed from the city of Los Angeles. So the jury was not composed, if you will, uh, of, of uh, 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 peers of these four officers. These were suburbanites uh, in, in, a, in another community altogether. Nonetheless, uh, I believe they were, you know, the officers had excellent counsel. I mean, you have credit where it's due to take what we all saw and have them uh, some weeks, months later, I forget how long that trial lasted, walk out of the courtroom essentially free of any accountability was just astonishing to a lot of people in this country, including yours truly. And yet, uh, I get it. Uh, people in many neighborhoods and communities have been sold an image of law enforcement, uh, you know, by local police leaders, by the police unions and, and so forth, talking about what a tough job it is. And you couldn't really see it in the video, but Rodney King had done this before the video started. That's always a favorite of mine. Before, you didn't see the whole thing, Norm. Uh, you, you did not see what preceded uh, the officer's use of force. That's a euphemism for cruelty and brutality. And it's true that I didn't see 10 minutes, 15 or 20 or 30 minutes of video footage of what happened before they turned the video on. That, by the way, was George Halliday, who is a citizen who had a new camcorder and brought it out. Uh, my memory, it could, could be failing me at this moment, is that he came out onto uh, a, uh, a balcony of his apartment complex or whatever it was and started shooting video of the Rodney King incident. But I, I, I really do believe that it doesn't take much to influence. <laughs> it doesn't make, take much to influence lay people. If you can convince them that something really significant happened before the, uh, Mr. Holiday turned on the video, uh, something of real significance took place, but you couldn't really see it in the footage. You can slow it down, you can speed it up, you can freeze frame, you can do this, that, and the other with the technology. But 
the bottom line is that 12 jurors were convinced that those officers had not broken the law. And um, I don't get it. I mean, you know, with my eyes, my ears, everything I saw and heard, all of my experience told me um, they should have been hooked up, put in the back of a caged police car and driven to jail. Those officers, mm. they should have been stopped by their fellow officers. The reason, by the way, they called this a, sort of, a, they created a theme of bystandership was, what ha why is it that police officers are reduced to witnesses in these beatings? We'd had a case in San Diego uh, uh, shortly after Rodney King, but before the trials, in which uh, eight officers were at the scene of, of an allegation of excessive force. And in the internal investigation, none of the eight saw it. I mean, you, you buy that? I don't think you do. <laughs> I don't buy it. Uh, and, and yet there's this, uh, it's, it's called social proof. You know, if, if you're part of an in-group, you're part of the public at large, or you're part of a police subculture, doesn't make any difference. Who you hang out with shapes your views and your values. It can literally shape your perception. You can misperceive and misjudge situations based on who you associate with. That is sandbox 1A, it's peer pressure. And so I think that's, you know, you've got a white, middle-class community from which the juror panel was drawn, sitting in judgment of these officers working the mean streets of LA and being persuaded that they had to do what they did. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I think that's, that's right. You, you talked about um, the, the perception, the slowing down of cameras, uh, footage, et cetera, et cetera, especially in the courtrooms. We're seeing a, a, a rise or a resurgence or a continuation of officers who, uh, with body cam footage, getting off. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we we got to take take our time. Six months, a year to the investigation. No news conferences, press conferences. What's your opinion about this? The slowfulness to get body camera footage out to uh, the public. Uh, it's a huge mistake from a public relations point of view. That's a term I rarely use in describing police work or how we should approach police work. But in reality, the image of a local agency is shaped uh, by public relations, good public relations, bad public relations, what have you. So I'll use that term rarely, but, but by it, I mean that if the police are only interested in managing their image, in presenting, you know, they're, they're putting their best foot forward and uh, a, attempting to persuade their communities of their transparency, their commitment to accountability, so on and so forth. You don't do that in secrecy. Uh, and I know the arguments, I've, I've used some of these arguments myself to try to put somebody off for a period of time. Look, the grand jury is meeting on this issue. Look, uh, homicide is working on this investigation. Premature release could compromise the integrity of the investigation. And all of that can be true. And in fairness, often is true. 
but if what we're facing is sort of competing demands, and by that I mean we've got uh, a poor public image, we have a lack of trust and respect for local law enforcement, do we really want to be uh, making administrative decisions about information we release on what you know basis of, of timeliness and uh, and thoroughness and so forth that we release it, then we need to have a conversation with our community. And this sort of brings me around to, to my overarching uh, vision for American law enforcement. And that is the police and the community working in true, authentic partnership. Not the police making every decision. Uh, the police deciding unilaterally uh, you know, what the agency is going to do, uh, how it's going to do, when it's going to do it, so on and so forth. So uh, if we were to embrace this authentic partnership, uh, police and community, and I'm talking about community activists, I'm talking about civic leaders, I'm certainly talking about the business community, I'm talking about, uh, you know, educational circles, I'm talking about elected and appointed officials, and yes, I'm talking about rank and file cops and police leaders essentially forging uh, a partnership that becomes an actual decision-making body, policy-making, program development, crisis management, uh, police and community working together in all of those um, crucial areas, and particularly when it comes to oversight mm. and, and discipline. I want to uh, acknowledge uh, some people who have come in. Chris Casey, Karen Rudy. Karen's a former uh, Waterbury police detective. I believe, Karen, I th you got to remind me. I think you were the first female detective, I, I believe. I know you're definitely the first female black detective, but were you first female detective? And I don't remember, so uh, forgive me. Uh, Chris Casey, uh, former uh, uh, fire department. You, you still like him anyway, even though he's a member of the fire department. <laughs> Uh, and then Karen wrote, uh, that's an inter that's interesting because I said the same thing uh, when I came on the job and there's nothing I did on the job that I'm ashamed of. She's talking about your story that you talked about. Yes. Uh, I was uh, very well liked and respected on the job. I applaud you for recognizing that you were sucked into the culture. So that's what she, uh, um, and she also, you know, said again that that was a very powerful story and thank you so much uh, for sharing. Um, I want to talk about your, your times and days as chief where you were um, obviously, I would assume that uh, as a member uh, uh, of, you know, all the chiefs kind of whatever had lunch together or part of a club, you know, uh, or, you know, state state chiefs agents and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, were you an outlier then when you're in these meetings with people and would they, did you notice secretive type of things and this, we're not going to release this. We're not going to release that. Were you an outlier in that thinking then? Yeah, that's a really good question. And for me, the answer is uh, I, I observed um, very modest incremental improvement in openness uh, and honesty amongst ourselves, as well as with our communities over the years. And, and, and you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're doing good work and you're pausing to analyze it, understand it, and yeah, celebrate it, um, then that does need a, a larger audience. 
if if uh, if if Cleveland, Ohio, comes up with a new way of approaching uh, family crisis intervention, domestic violence uh, calls, uh, the use of so-called non-lethal weapons uh, in in law enforcement, then we need to be talking about that as the law enforcement community. But of course, there are eighteen thousand police agencies or law enforcement agencies in this country. And that really does mean 18,000 different sets of policies and procedures Mm -hmm. and traditions and cultures. Um, A lot in common, some universals to be sure, but also very significant differences. So when it comes time to, you know, you know, when all these chiefs get together and in fact, the, uh, uh, for me, the premier, uh, agency uh, or association of police chiefs uh, is a major city's chiefs uh, for, for the for the big cities in North America. Uh, and three times a year, you would get together with your colleagues from the major cities. That's essentially uh, population 500,000 or more. And uh, we had this one exercise that we do at every gathering that is you know, I, I just call it around the room. So you go around the table and each chief gets five minutes. After the Rodney King incident, the major cities chiefs, uh, and you, you may recall, there was a succession of police chiefs uh, after Daryl Gates was essentially squeezed out. Uh, there was a series of, of police chiefs, including two Uh, highly respected African-American chiefs who took over as chief of that department. When it came time for Willie uh, Williams, who was the police chief, uh, in the wake of the Rodney King incident, I mean, I I should point this out, it was probably two to three years later, uh, because I didn't become a chief until 94. The incident was in 91. So here's an old guy reconstructing the timeline and trying to give you accurate information. But when it came time during a major cities uh, session for Los Angeles to report, we all voted and said, double his time, triple his time, give him what he wants, because we need to hear what he's got to say about how his officers are reacting uh, in the aftermath of the Rodney King incident. It was absolutely riveting. It was a fascinating conversation. And it is valuable, I think, for Chief to get together and do that. But yeah, if you if you look at how uh, 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 police chiefs and police officers communicate, there is a certain shortcut. There is a certain uh, t- tendency uh, to... to uh, to talk in abbreviated fashion about things that are really complex. And, and, the, and the more time we spend on these issues, assuming they are sensitive as well as complex issues, and the more we invite community into that conversation, the greater the utility of, of those chief's chats. Uh, there's a tendency to circle the wagons. There's a bunker mentality. There's tendency, it's kind of understandable, isn't it? You're being attacked. You want to defend yourself. Well, defensiveness is kind of like the worst thing you can do if you're being attacked. Uh, You listen. And then you listen some more and you listen again. And you keep listening. And you ask questions. 
and you occasionally make a statement. During this uh, symposium that I was talking about, uh, we brought in Stephen Covey, who was fairly popular in management circles in those days. Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders was one of his books. And uh, so he was there to give a talk. And he said, essentially, that effective leaders, and that can be a cop on the beat, it can be a chief in the corner pocket, it can be an elected sheriff, but effective leaders are those who seek first to understand and then to be understood. We're not wired that way. We're, we're, there to, we're there to tell the community, the city council, the mayor, we're there to tell uh, the police union, uh, you know, what the, what the truth is. We need to find ways to be more effective listeners and to embrace uh, truly effective leveled communication, not one up, one down communication. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's look at the other side of the coin here. Uh, people will often say the Ferguson effect. Yeah. Officers not wanting to do their job, just kind of sitting in a parking lot waiting to be called and not wanting to be proactive because of obviously Ferguson the, the mass videos, protests, et cetera, et cetera. What's your thoughts about, about that? Uh, my thought is that any police officer who raises his or her right hand and swears to uphold the Constitution of the United States, defend and protect that Constitution, and, and swears to, uh, depending on the particular jurisdiction's language, um, work to achieve public safety in our neighborhoods is morally bound to reject the Ferguson effect. Well, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, I am gonna pull into that parking lot as you were suggesting. I'll open up my thermos and pour myself a cup and pull out a dime novel or uh, go to work on my cell phone or my laptop or what have you. Um, that's not why you were hired. You are hired to protect lives and property. That's a sacred obligation from my point of view. People are hurting, people are scared. And it, it, it falls to the police, as I mentioned earlier, not exclusively, far from it, but it definitely falls to the police to deal with physical threats to the, to the health and safety and well-being of the people we have been hired to protect and serve. I picture a police officer parked under a street lamp and m maybe doing paperwork, but maybe not. Uh, ignoring a 911 call, for example, uh, or putting the lid back on, the cap back on the thermos and driving three miles an hour to a call because he is de-policing his beat, his or her beat. Uh, and I think that's immoral. I think it's it's morally reprehensible and, and it ought never to happen. I get the impulse. Well, you know, I'm gun shy. I, you know, I'm not trying to be contrary here, but my God, every time I turn around, I, I, I'm being criticized or my institution's being criticized. Um, we're having rocks and bottles chucked at us, occasional Molotov cocktail thrown at a police car, that sort of thing. 
we've had sniper incidents in Dallas, in New York, in Houston, in cities across the country. So I get that. And, and so for me, the larger question is, how do we make police work as safe as we can possibly make it while ensuring that our officers understand that at least a piece of your salary goes to taking risk? Uh, and if a, a woman or a child is being beaten in a domestic violence case, you have absolutely uh, no defense for not responding to that as quickly and effectively and as efficiently as you can. Policing recruitment is down, just to continue on with your, what you're saying there. Policing recruitment is down because of all the incidents that we're seeing, uh, the Ferguson effect, the Molotov cocktails, the sniper incidents, et cetera, et cetera. What do you say to young people who don't want to become a police officer? I've been pushing for this. I mean, the, the, to me, it's not, particularly as a black male, you can't say, I've been telling people, uh, uh, you know, you know, the police aren't aren't for our communities and this and that. Well, that's to me, that's all the more reason to join them. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> so what would you say? What would you say? Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I have been called many things in my career, uh, but a social crusader was one of them. I was called back when I was a lieutenant. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I was defending the actions of, of one of my black officers. Uh, who had done exactly the right thing under exactly the proper circumstances. And, and yet uh, he was being criticized by another watch, another supervisor. And I, I took pen to paper and wrote out a report that was kind of scathing. On reflection, I probably could have been a little more temperate in my language. But I said, uh, this officer uh, is, 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 receives a portion of his salary for taking abuse. You know, there, there are some people that just do not like cops and never will like cops. And that's life. I mean, that's that's life in, in America. We also have many people who want to like cops. Mm. And if we can adjust our behavior and begin to behave in a way that builds trust, uh, all, all, all the more power to our institution for doing that. That's a, that's a smart, good thing to do. But in this particular case, I said he was not, he is not paid a portion of his salary to take abuse. And it was a racial, uh, kind of a, 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 a subliminal racial slur that was directed his way by the subordinate of another supervisor on another watch. Uh, and I was just, I was just pissed, frankly. I was really angry. And I wrote out this screed in which I, I, I said, this guy didn't hire on to take abuse from his, from his fellow officers. He knows that he's gonna take some abuse from the people, but not from his fellow officers. So I, I think we need to have honest conversations, you know, about how we communicate with one another. And we need to find ways to uh, uh, particularly raise critical questions or offer critical observations without destroying the relationship. Uh, you know, one of the things that I had had to ask myself throughout my career is, okay, you feel better now that you got that off your chest? Uh, <laughs> what, what did you accomplish? Mm. Did you change anything? Did you invite this individual to maybe rethink the way he or she handled a given situation? So there's a lot, 
I think that we need to learn, those of us who fancy ourselves change agents, about how most effectively to communicate uh, with our fellow officers, or in my case, former officers. Yes. Um, culture stems from the top down a lot of times. Um, it's been resistant since the time that you were a, a new officer, 60s, 70s, resistant in, uh, in, the, in the 90s with Rodney King, resistant in 2014 with uh, uh, Michael Brown, Ferguson, uh, in other incidents. Uh, it's seeming to be resistant today, uh, even though, you know, after the George Floyd incident, there's been some... <laughs> Some concessions, but in my mind, not enough. Congress still can't get anything done. Uh, my my opinion, we ought to fire every single one of them and start all over again. But how do we change the culture of policing? Give us your best shot. You're a consultant. Give us your best shot. Years of wisdom. Tell us how we change the culture of policing. We change the culture of policing by changing the structure of policing. If we're not prepared to do that, we will be back having this conversation after some future tragic incident uh, that, that people are hurting over and angry about. We will see that happen time and time again, as it has throughout the entire history of American law enforcement. Start with the basic premise that policing has its roots in the days of the slave patrols. American policing is tied irrevocably um, to the earliest days of any semblance of organized policing where cops, sometimes in their spare time, were rounding up property uh, that was owned by slave owners and returning that property and, and, and receiving payment in return. That's, that's, that's the origins of American policing, that and kind of the watch person, watchman style policing. Mm. Light, light, you know, light a street lamp at, 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 at dusk and uh, extinguish it at dawn and uh, call out if there's a fire, you know, that sort of thing. Very primitive, early form of policing. But as policing grew, it never once really changed uh, the, the structures that grew out of the institution from the very beginning. So affiliated with slave patrols, and not exclusively, of course, but throughout the United States, American policing from the beginning has been with very modest, I would say cosmetic reform, waves of reform. It's been a, a paramilitary, top-down, bureaucratic institution uh, in which the police can do no wrong, and we don't need the input of our citizens uh, to guide us, direct us, or even influence us in our, in our policing policies and practices. So from the very beginning, policing uh, has been engaged in a pattern of institutionalized racism, systemic racism, uh, misogyny, sexism, homophobia, Every other brand of bigotry finds its way into that culture. Not every cop, to be sure, but altogether too many cops uh, to say that it's the exception or to chalk it up to a handful of bad apples. Um, that's absolute nonsense. 
it, we've seen enough bad apples in police work that we need to look at the barrel and mm -hmm. how it's constructed. We need to look at the orchard. We need to look at the whole system of apple production, if we're going to use that, that metaphor. I reject the metaphor because I, I, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense. But it does help us understand that if, if the barrel keeps producing bad apples, there just might be something wrong with that barrel. And for me, that barrel is the paramilitary, bureaucratic, highly regimented uh, command and control system that is American policing. Uh, my senior thesis at San Diego State back in the early 70s was entitled, The Community is DMZ, Breaking Down the Police Paramilitary Bureaucracy. And I made my first real argument against the system of American policing at that time. And, and since then, my, my opposition to the way policing is organized has only grown deeper and deeper. Um, until we're ready to, to re-engineer American policing, which is why, uh, by the way, uh, uh, why I support the call for dismantling and for defunding. Two very controversial uh, uh, lines of advocacy coming from community critics. And it's not that I necessarily favor one or the other or both of those. What I favor is an honest conversation about what dismantling policing would look like. We're a big, complex, industrialized uh, society, uh, you know, uh, with hundreds of millions of people and huge social problems, uh, major uh, technological challenges, certainly major challenges in education and God knows given the pandemic, healthcare and how we handle all these complex issues. So it's not that we can really get rid of bureaucracy as such, but we can make a bureaucracy humane. We can make a bureaucracy constitutional. We can make the organizational structure itself um, sympathetic to human beings. And, and right now, in too many cases, it's just not. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad for your one uh, 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 observer's uh, comment about, uh, you know, acting respectfully from the time she hired on. That's wonderful. That's, that's something to celebrate. It's something to quiz. How is it that that happened for you? Uh, what were the components? your first sergeant, your first lieutenant, uh, what was said to you? What was done to you or for you by those individuals? How did you uh, carve out a, a working relationship with your peers and so on and so forth? So in, anyway, I'm getting a little sidetracked here. I do that to myself from time to time. But it's all I good. <laughs> I, do believe, I do believe that it is a fool's errand to think that we can put together a blue ribbon committee, even one as prestigious, uh, as Barack Obama's 21st century policing panel, uh, co-chaired by Lori Robinson and, and uh, Chuck Ramsey, two dear friends of mine who are just wonderful police reformers. They did solid work. And, 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 um, and some of it was in the process. A good deal of it 
was in the process of being implemented when lo and behold, 2016 rolls around and we have an entirely different administration that is anti-science, anti-human rights, anti-civil rights, anti-constitutional law enforcement, where you get the president of the United States, uh, symbolically the leader of all government in the, in the country, although we recognize home rule and city councils and boards of supervisors and so forth. But here's a guy who is saying, don't be too kind to your prisoners. He's saying that to a convention of police officers. Don't, you know, I see you putting your hand on their heads when you put them in the back seat of a car. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. This is the president of the United States encouraging police brutality. Um, so if there is a God and uh, all of the voters, I'm being a little partisan here, but I have to be because the time. <laughs> I couldn't tell. <laughs> the, times, the times just demanded. We need a leader we can respect. Uh, 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 across all lines, Democrat, Republican, I, I, I favor one over the other, but that's not relevant. What's relevant is we've had effective principled leaders who may have taken positions different from mine uh, on both sides of the aisle from both parties. Today, we've got an anomaly in the Oval Office uh, and he's an embarrassment and uh, he's dangerous. Well, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I, I was just telling someone else uh, who's more right leaning. Well, he's very well, he's right leaning. <laughs> so <laughs> but but we actually have a good time talking. And I was sure. just telling him that that, uh, you know, I think it's too bad because I think that this president really could have done some good things. I think a lot of Americans agree with a lot of the policies that he wanted to put forth. I mean, immigration reform, things like that. But the way he went about it, I mean, you, okay, we're going to have immigration reform by by putting kids in cages, you know. So, so it's just it's just the way he went about a lot of things. And of course, his embracing of the of, of the right wing, of, of the right racist terrorists now, you know, and yes. all this kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to let you go. I just got one more serious question here. Uh, what's your thoughts about? We talked. You talked about this a little bit. I just wanted to dig into this. Um, uh, what's your thoughts about nationalizing the police? You know, Eighteen thousand police departments. What what would you be your thoughts about one particular agency who oversees it all, uh, in, in in training, education, all that kind of? What would be your thoughts about that? I, I really appreciate that question, and I'll try to abbreviate something that could take even longer than most of my answers. Today. <laughs> I apologize. For that. It's all good. It's but all I good. can tell you that uh, in my latest book. I describe a system by which the federal government, not this administration, any no, previous this one, <laughs> any future one, we can hope, right. but, but a responsible Department of Justice would preside over the setting of national standards for search and seizure, for stop and frisk, for laws of arrest, for use of force, for God's sakes. Those are the constitutionally embedded procedural justice requirements that are binding on every single cop and every single agency in this country. So while I don't necessarily favor the British model, a national system of, of policing, I do favor setting, you know, 18,000 departments, one constitution. What does that tell us? All 18,000 of those departments and all seven to 900,000 police officers, that figure does fluctuate. Uh, is, by, is, is 
uh, uh, obligated to abide by the Constitution. So that's what I favor. It's a form of federalism. Uh, the chapter, my chapter is more big government, please. That's not popular with pretty much anybody. But yeah, it is one place <laughs> in which the government does need to say, I don't care if you're a police officer in Waukegan or Dubuque or San Diego or Seattle or, or Waterbury, I, I need you to understand that that constitution and how you treat people is binding. It's not optional. It's not negotiable. Uh, if you can't or won't play by the rules, uh, you know, uh, I was going to, I was going to use a local reference. Safeway is hiring. If you're, if you can't play by the rules, go get a job at a supermarket. Don't be, don't even think about being a police officer. Because if we don't have officers who abide by the law, we, we do not have a defensible public safety system. And Lord knows we need one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to push your website here. You have a website, normstamper.com. Please, everyone, go over to that. Uh, I read the book, uh, Breaking Rank, uh, and I, I top cops expose on the dark side of American policing. And I got I'm embarrassed to admit that I until we set this up, I did not know you had a second book, How to Fix America's Police oh, to Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. So I'm gonna read that and I'm gonna reach out to you so we can have a conversation about that book because I haven't read it yet. So I would, I would love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh Karen uh says, I grew up in the hood and saw that the way the police treated people and told myself I wouldn't be that type of cop. I told every cop I saw mistreating someone to stand down or that's enough. I wanted to help people and have fun and catch bad guys. I can echo that sentiment. I wanted to ha help people have fun and catch bad guys. Uh, I would often tell uh, some of my friends who weren't police officers, uh, they would ask me, you know, how you liked the job? And I would say, you know, I love it. I had a great time last night. We worked and, you know, and they couldn't believe, you know, we had a, how can you have a good time, you know, arresting people? Yeah. But listen, you can have a good time doing this job and you don't have to hurt people or shoot people who are running away from you <laughs> or or shoot people who are who are dropping wallets and stuff. You know, you can have a good time, do your job and actually help people. That's um, well so, said. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Chief, Norm. <laughs> Dr. Chief Norm Stamper, thank you so much for coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. When I read the book, I'll reach out to you again. Uh, I'd love to have you back. I, I enjoyed the conversation. I always look at your uh, your uh, YouTube uh, or or your other interviews and things like that. And if anyone goes over to normstamper.com, you can see the litany of papers uh, and awards and publications that he that he's done. Uh, and so it's just it's just a lot. I'm not going to try to read through all that, but he's been doing a lot of great work and thank you so much for your uh uh for your standing up for police officers and to do the job the right way we're not anti-cop we want it done the right way oh uh chief riddick is here chief uh my former chief and current west hartford uh police chief chief how were you able to manage your time i've been a chief for two agencies and i've had a very difficult uh time managing my time oh gosh um <laughs> uh Everybody's different. Every job is different. But there, as I said, there's some universals. Everybody's going to want a piece of you if you're the chief. Uh, and so the question is, how we spend our days, how we spend our hours and minutes is a reflection of what matters to us. So I, every once in a while, I have to remind myself of that. Uh, slap myself upside the head and say, look, 
Are you currently spending time on something that's going to make a difference and that matters to you? If not, find a way to delegate it, find a way to eliminate it. Uh, and, and it means, you know, tough decisions in support of, you know, effective time management. But you're probably coming to the wrong person for that with that question. No, he's coming to the right person. No, you're very kind. <laughs> no he's coming to the right person. You, you've definitely done a big, big city department in, uh, you know, PhD and all this kind of stuff you got going on. So you're <laughs> definitely, definitely the right person. Uh, Karen says, uh, nice job. Thank you, Dr. Norm. Thank you. And I agree with that. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, keep up the great work. I'll be looking for the next publications and all that kind of stuff. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure Absolutely. being with you. It's an honor. Oh, uh, the honor is all mine. Um, so let's see. Uh, so we are going to have another show this coming Wednesday. We're going to be talking about uh, more messy entanglements and relationships and all that kind of stuff. We're going to take a, a break from the police work for a little bit and uh, and uh, talk about uh, relationships and communications and all that kind of stuff. If you're not doing anything, maybe you can stop by Dr. Chief there and uh, <laughs> give us your expertise on how to how to have better communication in our relationships and all that. So, uh, so thank you everyone for coming on, and uh, thank you everyone to, who came on, Karen, to Chief Riddick, to uh, Detective Saruti, to Chris Casey, uh, great guest. Thank you, Dr. Chief. Thank you, you two, Cap, Joe, Marlene. Uh, and everyone else who, who who came on, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chief. Uh, I'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. Very much looking forward to it. Absolutely. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.